You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Named the best podcast of 2018 by Apple. Tons of fascinating guests. Untold stories you won't hear anywhere else. Expand your wisdom and discover other perspectives that you've never considered before with The Jordan Harbinger Show. Join Jordan as he interviews high-profile people as well as intriguing personalities. Each episode features a discussion that might just take you anywhere. I recommend episode 970, where Jordan and guest Annie Jacobson talk nuclear annihilation. How likely is it? How scared should you be? And what comes after? There's also episode 886 with David Farina, which delves into the wacky world of flat earthers. These episodes are great starting points, but you're sure to find deep, interesting, and thought-provoking topics throughout Jordan's catalog. Turn off the music and turn up the wisdom with The Jordan Harbinger Show. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The nightmare creatures of the dark are getting closer, and my campfire is dwindling. But if you follow the Darkness Prevails podcast on Spotify, leave us a review on iTunes, and follow me on Twitter, at Dark Prevails, you can keep the symbolic fire going strong and never miss another scary story from us. Rain hitting the windshield, wiper blades swiping left and right, the palpable humidity of the stormy night diffusing into the cabin as you drive along. Driving is relaxing, especially when the road is straight and the passers-by are few. Trees all around are a bonus, but when the gaslight blinks on and you realize you're a bit too far from the nearest gas station, you think maybe you should have brought your phone along now. You're moments away from being stranded on the side of the road in the dark with nothing but the rain and the cold. But maybe, just maybe, if you're lucky or very unlucky, something else might happen upon your broken down car and keep you company. Enjoy these driving horror stories. If you have a scary story of your own, and you want a chance to have it narrated, share it with us at darkstories.org. I'd love to hear some alone at night stories. Now, let's begin. 
The Arkansas Story From Ronin 316 I found myself heading from Northwest Indiana to Houma, Louisiana on a Friday evening. I'd set out some time in the afternoon. My best friend at the time had made an agreement with his ex-wife to come get his eldest daughter over Thanksgiving weekend, and this was the return trip to take her home. I should mention here that this occurred in the early 2000s, and I was in my early 20s. My friend, who for this story I'll refer to as D, was a truck driver and had been OTR, or over the road, the last few days. So the agreement was I would start the drive and he would sleep. Then when he woke up, we'd stop somewhere and swap. His daughter, who was around seven at the time, quietly played on her Game Boy for the first few hours before falling asleep in the back of my blazer. I found myself driving down either I-55 or 57, I can't remember, when around 3 a.m., D started to wake up. He asked me how the drive was going. I told him it was fine. He glanced in the back to see his daughter sleeping, then asked me what state we were in. I told him Arkansas. He nodded. Then he watched as a couple mile markers went by. He told me there should be a rest stop ahead a few miles, then we could stop and stretch our legs, then he would take over driving. I nodded, and we conversed about nothing until the exit sign for the rest stop came into view, within a few miles, just like he said. Now, I was driving fast, not insanely fast, but maybe 80 or so. When the exit came around, I took it, not really slowing down. Immediately, I noticed something was wrong, but I couldn't figure out what it was exactly. Coming around a curve, I was met with the concrete divider that separates residential and commercial vehicles. It was then I realized that the problem was none of the pole lights that lined the ramp were on, so it was pitch black, and I hadn't seen the divider due to the curve. D grabs his oh crap handle and starts pumping imaginary brakes, and I veer hard to the left, barely missing the divider, narrowly avoiding killing us all. I slow way down, easing into the residential parking side, where again there are no operable lights, and notice the entire lot is full with the exception of one parking space. The very first one you can take, actually. I park as D comments on the power apparently being out, and we sit there for a moment coming down from the adrenaline rush that was us nearly dying in a fiery car crash. He glances back at his daughter who somehow managed to remain sleeping while I send her thrashing about the back of the blazer. Dee then looks to me and says, You go first. I'll stay with her. And when you come back, I'll take her and we can get back on the road. I nod and go to shut off my vehicle. When my hand reaches my keys and just hangs there for a moment. Now, one thing you gotta know about me is I never, ever, and I mean ever, leave my keys in the vehicle. Can't stand it. Don't like it. I have this weird thing that if I'm not in it, I want my keys on me. Not sure why. Nothing has ever happened for me to have cause for this. Just one of my quirks, I guess. 
So as I sat there with my hand on the ignition key, D goes, you all right, man? I shake my head a bit and reply, yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna leave it running. Now, my buddy knows me, and he knows about this particular quirk of mine, but he just shrugged and said all right. What I didn't tell him was that I had just had this weird feeling that if I shut it off, it wouldn't start, which made no sense as the vehicle was perfectly sound and had never given me cause to have that particular worry. I hop out, and like I said, we were in the very first parking spot, so we were on the far end of the restrooms, specifically the women's side, as it turned out, so I had to walk to the other side to get to the men's. Instead of walking down the sidewalk, I opted to cut across the grass. It was shorter. As I'm walking, I figure that if none of the lights in the parking lot are working, odds are none of the electric is on inside the restrooms either. It's not a problem per se. I don't scare easily, and I prefer the dark over daylight. Also, I grew up in a haunted house and had my fair share of creepy experiences. Ghost stories? I got tons of them. The point I'm getting to is that while I believe in the paranormal and the likes, it takes more than a dark room to get under my skin. So, as I approach the men's room, I resign myself to this fact, opening the door. Sure enough, it's dark in there too. I sigh, but notice that the moon is out and full and with its light, I can get a basic idea of the layout of the bathroom with the door open. The door, however, is spring-loaded, so it would close behind me, but at least I had a heading for when I went in. I go to step inside, and, my hand to God, my feet refused to move. So, I stood there at the threshold, trying to will my legs to work again, but they wouldn't. Someone might as well have nailed my feet to the ground. I tried in vain for a few moments to take the next step into the room, getting angry at myself for not being able to, while becoming increasingly embarrassed by how dumb I must have looked standing there, when, for reasons that lack all rationale, I think to myself that the lights are motion sensitive. Maybe I just need to go in far enough and they'll turn on. A shot in the dark, I know, and being an electrician by trade, I knew the odds were hard against me. But it was a guess. Not enough to get my legs working, mind you, so instead I settled on holding on to the door jamb with one hand, while waving my other hand inside, trying to catch the attention of a motion sensor that, deep down, I knew didn't exist. A few moments of this, and I am inwardly admonishing myself for looking so foolish when, to this day, I still don't know why, I became immediately terrified. Just like with my vehicle, I had this sudden and overwhelming feeling that if I didn't get my hand out of that room, something I couldn't see was going to grab it, yank me inside, and that would be the end of me. As fast as I could, I ripped my arm from the door and closed it while putting my back into it. With every ounce of strength I had, I dug my boots into the concrete, 
waiting for whatever monster my imagination had conjured to shoulder-check the door from the other side. I was sweating, breathing hard, growing tired from the fear and exertion. Did anything happen? No. I stood there looking ridiculous until I finally let off the door and stood to face it one last time. As I stood there, I chuckled at my own stupidity and shook my head at the thought that this is the kind of stuff that scares other people, not me. Nonetheless, I came to two very simple revelations in that moment. One, there is no way in ten hells I'm going into that bathroom, and two, I'm a guy. Any tree will do. Fortunately, the rest stop was nestled in a wooded area, so my options were vast and varied. I find a nice-sized oak out of the way and walk over to it. I go around the back and proceed to take care of business. This puts me directly between the thick oak and the woods, so of course I get the feeling that I'm being watched. I'm just over this whole thing at that point, so I say out loud and to no one, I'm sorry your life is so boring that you have to resort to watching a guy use the bathroom. I say this as I'm finishing up, and as I come back around the tree facing the entire parking lot of 30-ish cars, I freeze. I stood there, the smile from my poor attempt at humor fading fast as my blood ran cold. For the life of me, I have no idea how or why it took me so long to notice this. Maybe it was the initial rush on our arrival. Maybe it was my tunnel vision of contending with the dark bathroom. I don't know. But there I stood, looking over a sizable parking lot full of cars, mine the furthest away and there wasn't a single soul around. Not one other person to be found. Thirty-plus empty cars. No one walking their dog, no one stretching their legs, not one single other person anywhere. I thought I had to be missing something, so I looked all around in every direction, but there was nothing, and it was quiet, as if the world around me was holding its breath. It was one of the weirdest, most unnerving moments of my life. I took a breath, and I started to make my way back to the vehicle. Only this time, I opted to take the sidewalk, so I could see into most of the cars parked in front. Yet still, they were all empty. And while I understand that having a car seat doesn't demand that one is traveling with a child... Some of the other bits and bobs and accoutrements strongly suggested it. When I got back to my vehicle, I got in, and before I closed the door, Dee told me in a tone that was very unlike him that we needed to get the heck out of there. I wasted no time, peeling out of the parking lot as fast as the blazer would go. We ended up finding a truck stop and stopping there for facilities, snacks, and drinks. I don't remember why, but I continued driving, and after his daughter fell back to sleep, unaware of the entire rest stop excursion, D finally asked me what I experienced. I told him, and when I was finished, he told me that like me, and despite any explanation as to why it took him so long, he noticed the same thing. Except for him, it was the trucks in the commercial lot that got his attention. He said he had the window down so he could smoke. 
when he noticed none of the trucks were running. I didn't see the relevance in that, but he explained to me that truckers don't often shut their rigs off unless they are leaving them. If they're parking for the night or out of hours, they often leave them running to power TVs, game consoles, or whatever form of entertainment they have, not to mention AC or heat for the night. When he didn't see any truckers in their cabs, filling out their logbooks or walking around, talking to loved ones on their phones, he started really paying attention. That was about the time I started back toward the truck myself. When I got back to my door, he was, as he put it, thoroughly unnerved. We continued to Homa without further incident. We dropped off his daughter and spent some time there so he could see his younger daughter. Left there and we stopped for a genuine po' boy that was fantastic. Then we were off to Mississippi so I could meet a lady friend of mine that I'd met online. We spent about six hours there and had a lovely time, minus a small misunderstanding where her father pulled a gun on me. It was fine. She pulled one on him and defused the situation. It really is like a whole other world down south. We were on the Gulf, so I asked if Dee minded if we stopped by the ocean. I'd never been to one, and I didn't know if we'd have another chance to again. Not for nothing, but I'm 40 as of July this year, and I haven't been back to an ocean since, so good call, I guess. After an hour or so there, I'd been awake for something like 34 hours. Dee told me to crash, and he'd start the long drive back. It was still light out, but I crawled into the back of my blazer and passed out. Some undeterminable time later, I awoke to Dee screaming, Dude! Dude, wake up! In my sleep-addled state, I sat up and asked him what was going on. It was dark out by this time, and he told me to look out the window. I did, and I saw red and blue lights on the other side of the highway. They were everywhere. Had to be a couple dozen patrol cars, all in a row bunched up in one area. You could also see at least two choppers flying around in circles above them. I asked if there was some sort of bad accident. I'll never forget his response. He said to me, No, dude, we're in Arkansas. That's the rest stop. A few years later, I had to tell this story in front of a literature class. After I finished, I started to leave when a few of the students raised their hands. I looked at the professor. She nodded, so I pointed at one of them. It was a guy who had a question. I don't remember what it was, but I answered. Then another question, and another. Finally, a woman raised her hand and I pointed at her. She said, and? I said, and what? She replied with, and you never found out what happened. I regarded her for a moment before replying. The way I figure it, this story ends in one of two ways. Best case scenario, after state and local authorities received multiple reports of abandoned or otherwise unattended vehicles at rest stops such and such, an extensive search of that spot and surrounding areas turned up the gruesome discovery of corpses stacked like firewood in the woods. That's the best case scenario. 
Option two, after state and local authorities received multiple reports of abandoned or otherwise unattended vehicles at the rest stop, an extensive search of that spot and surrounding area was conducted. After putting forth countless man hours, personnel, and resources, they found absolutely nothing. Either way, I don't need to know that badly. Feathers and Fangs from Semi-Controlled Chaos Let me begin by saying these stories come from my family, so they are not my own personal stories, rather stories that have been told to me. Both of these tales happened at night, on or just after hunting trips. The first happened to my father and cousin. One night, they decided to go frog gigging along the back roads of the hunting club they were in. My father said the night was uneventful for the most part. They hadn't even seen another car drive by that night. That was a bit odd as it was one of the club's main roads. Anyway, they managed to fill an ice chest with frogs, so they started back towards home. On the drive there, they started to notice something. Eyes glowing in the trees. Not just a single pair, not even a dozen pairs. My father swears to me that there were so many eyes, he wasn't even able to count them all. Then the next thing he knew, there were owls in the road, flying around his truck. He said there were so many owls that they surrounded the truck and even started to attack it. They would fly headfirst into the windshield, clawing at the sides. Both he and my cousin were terrified that one of the owls may eventually be able to break the glass, and if that happened, they worried they wouldn't be able to keep the owls out. My father says he had to slow the truck to a crawl, not by choice, mind you, but the owls were so thick in the air that he couldn't see the road ahead of him. They had to crawl along at around five miles per hour for about three miles. The entire time, these owls never let up the assault on the truck, scratching, pecking, and body slamming it from all directions. Eventually, the birds let up, and my father and cousin were able to speed up, leaving the swarm of angry claws and flapping wings behind them. To this day, no one but me seems to believe it, my cousin doesn't even talk about it anymore because he's tired of people calling him a liar about it, which seems odd given what happened to him just a few years later. It happened in the same area. He and some friends had once again gone frog gigging. It was much of the same, a particularly uneventful night where they got a decent amount of frogs, but once again on the way back to the truck to go home, they started to hear something, a long howl. My cousin and his friends recognized it as a coyote howl. They paid it no mind and kept walking, but then there was another howl. This time, it was from behind them. It hadn't even been 10 seconds after the first. Then more and more howls came, slowly at first from different directions, but quickly picking up by the second. My cousin and his buddies were more than spooked at this point, because these howls sounded like they were coming from all around, 
They kept increasing in number and volume until from what my cousin says, it sounded like an air raid siren. He and his buddies dropped the chest and booked it back toward the truck. The whole way back, the sound of howling never died down. It stayed with them, and they could hear things rustling in the bushes all around them. Keep in mind it was dark, and from what he says, they were too scared to use the light they had because they were in panic mode. As a result, they never actually saw any of the coyotes. My cousin, however, says that once he was within 20 feet of the truck, a howl came from right in between him and the truck, meaning one of these creatures was blocking their way to the vehicle. My cousin, in a panic, threw his frog gig in the direction of the howl. He then heard a high-pitched yelp, and he kept going until he reached the truck. Once they were all inside, they sped off, and to my knowledge, they hadn't gone back since. Some context I later found out about the area. I think it's located near a Native American burial ground in Dixie County, Florida. The road it's on is known as the Bowlegs Road because of the Native American chief being buried there, Billy Bowlegs, I believe. So perhaps, just perhaps, the spirit chief is causing these odd behaviors in the animals there. So watch out if you ever find yourself on those back roads at night. Something Eating Roadkill from Sam Sweeney. At the time I was 22, I was in the Air Force, stationed at Creech Air Force Base. If you want a visual to the story, look up Creech Meteor on YouTube. That might be important later. Anyhow, I was driving my truck with four 50-pound sandbags to whom I thought would be my brother-in-law's house in Indian Springs, which was right across the highway from Creech Air Force Base. He was engaged to my sister, and I had no problem picking up some sandbags and driving up to him. He was trying to DIY a basement. Now, Highway 95 doesn't seem dangerous, but it runs right through the Mojave Desert, and it's a straight 45-minute drive. It was winter, so even though it was only 8.30, it was pitch black out. I was nearly to my destination when the sky lit up green. If you look up that Creech Meteor video, it's in black and white, but had that video been in color, you would have seen something bright green. I pulled over to try and get a video of it, but I failed. I got back in the truck and back on the road, but then I saw the subject of this story. At first, it looked like a man in a hat and a trench coat. He was bent over a dead dog on the side of the road. I was an aspiring military working dog handler at the time, so I pulled over to see if I could offer my help. As soon as I got out of the car, the figure stood up and stared at me. This figure had the face of a coyote and bright green eyes. I wish I could say I fought it or screamed, but I ducked behind my truck and froze. I swear if I hadn't used the bathroom before, I would have wet myself when I heard that click-clack of canine paws hitting the ground. It was approaching me. 
I felt the hot breath of an animal breathing on my neck, but I stayed frozen. After a while, I heard it walk away, but the chewing sounds resumed. I got back in my truck and floored it, and I stayed the night at my destination. I've seen gruesome accidents, but this was the most afraid I've ever been on the road. A Scary Drive Home from Mary H. This happened to me over 20 years ago, somewhere in Maine, but the details are still very clear in my mind. Halloween is my absolute favorite holiday, and I love decorated houses, businesses, etc. While driving somewhere, I'll usually pull over and park to look at every detail of a well-decorated location. On this particular occasion, I was driving on a back road around 11.30 p.m. on a cold October night. It would have been very near to the 31st. As I went by this house, I noticed a graveyard scene that looked interesting, with a low ground fog that added a spookiness and reality to the scene. I pulled over and sat with my car idling, as it was cold out, to look at this wonderfully decorated front yard. It was an elaborate graveyard scene, complete with body parts strewn about, bodies hanging from trees, lots of gravestones, bats, rats, skeletons, and some graves, which were partially dug open with zombie hands and heads looking as if they were digging themselves out of the graves. It was very quiet and very eerie, excellently and painstakingly done with lots of details, even including inscriptions on the gravestones. While I was sitting there quietly, enjoying every moment and joyfully noting every detail, suddenly a man with a mask leapt out from behind a gravestone, started an actual chainsaw, and ran, and I mean fast, right towards the car. He was dressed like Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 2, with a dirty pillowcase with eye holes for a mask, and overalls with a flannel shirt. I sat there for a moment, stunned and shocked as I never expected this, then took off like a shot down the road. He chased my vehicle for a while, and when it was clear he wasn't going to catch up, he just stood there in the middle of the road, smoke coming from the chainsaw, still running. He watched me drive away. As I think back to this event, I have several questions. I recall that the house itself was totally dark, no lights on anywhere, save for one outside lantern to shed light on the scene. There were no vehicles in the driveway, and it seemed as if no one was home. So I'm thinking, this dude is just sitting there in the dark, in the cold, late at night, nearly midnight, just hoping a vehicle would happen to drive by on this rural back road. Wasn't he cold? There weren't any other vehicles on the road. How did he know I was coming? Did he know that I would pull over to sit for a few minutes looking the scene over? Did everyone who went by do that? How long was he out there before I came by, and wasn't he uncomfortable, just kneeling or crouching behind the gravestone that long? The idea that someone would go to all that trouble, just hoping that someone would drive by and stop long enough for him to come out running with a chainsaw in hand, that idea is in itself freaky. Was it really a prank? Or was it some demented soul who was looking for a chance to do something more than just scare 
under the guise of a Halloween scene. I'm glad I'll never find out, and just accept that he was looking for a harmless scare, but who really knows? This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer, Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play, with my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Creatures on the Roof visions of your own death, and monsters in the mountains. Today's episode of Darkness Prevails is packed full of creepy goodness that will surely have you scared and ready to stay up all night. Enjoy these stories, and be sure to send us your own at darkstories.org. I'd love to hear some alone at night stories and tales from security guards. Now, let's begin. Stalked by an invisible creature from Swamp Dweller himself. This guy's a talented narrator. I'll link to his channel in the description. I grew up in rural areas my entire life, whether it was beef farms in Tennessee or living in the middle of nowhere, Florida. I've done it all, growing up without access to most commonalities we have grown accustomed to. Yeah, that's right. We had no internet, no TV, and yep, you guessed it, no cell phones. I know, the horror, right? I like to think of us as the last true generation before the internet age. Not to say dial-up wasn't around, but most of us at the time really didn't have access to it. But honestly, it really wasn't all that bad, outside of the long, boring summer days where we'd be cooking alive in the fields. Living out in an old Civil War cabin in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, definitely shilled out some interesting experiences. This story is one of many I have to share. The story starts off like any other, really. It was a typical Friday night, and my brothers and I were home alone. 
Being as we didn't have much of anything to entertain ourselves with, we began playing manhunt in and around the house. Most of the time, we opted to stay indoors, as it was pitch black outside. For a bit more context, our cabin was situated on top of a rather steep hill that had a long, winding driveway running down it. Our cabin had a basement level, the main level where most of the house was, and the upstairs that only had my room. We also had a back deck that was situated about 10 to 12 feet in the air, if I had to guess. Anyway, back to the story at hand. It was pitch black outside, and going much further than our front porch at night wasn't really something anyone enjoyed doing out there. The game was fun, but was already getting pretty monotonous with the little room we had inside. At this point, I had the bright idea to wander off outside and hide on the roof to make the game more interesting. This would soon be one of my biggest regrets in life. At first, everything seemed fine. It was rather cold as it was nearing fall, and the weather was just starting to change. There was a slight breeze, and the air was crisp and calming. After a few minutes of sitting up on the roof, though, something felt off. I had been practically mesmerized by the sound of crickets and cicadas. I realized, though, that all the noise had suddenly stopped. This to me seemed very odd, but at the same time, being as naive as I was at the time, I didn't realize this only meant something bad was going to happen. I sat there as still as possible for a moment, trying to listen as closely as I could. I just couldn't seem to hear anything, aside from the slight breeze through the leaves. Then, as quickly as the silence came, an eruption of noise came from the other end of the roof. For a bit more detail, we had a metal roof at the time, making it very easy to hear when things walk on the roof. It sounded like something had landed on the opposite end of the roof. I looked over, but could see nothing. This, of course, left me rather unnerved, and my first thought was to exit the situation. Before panicking fully, I remembered it could be my brothers messing with me, since surely they would have given up on looking for me by now. I opened up my window and called my brothers. They both ran up the stairs shouting and complaining that the roof was off limits. As my oldest brother got to me, I asked him if he had been messing with me and making noises on the roof. He, of course, denied this and wanted to come up and investigate. So he and I slowly made our way to the middle of the roof and listened for a moment. Everything went quiet around us as it had earlier. At this point, I was already on edge and ready to karate chop a demon in the neck if I had to. We hear what sounded like a pounding noise on the far end of the roof in the opposite direction of where we were standing. After what I think were three sets of six pounding noises, it charged us. Well, I think it did, anyway. It sounded like hooves were running on the metal roof, but the only issue was we couldn't see a thing. The entire roof was clear, aside from us, that is. But somehow, we were hearing these footsteps. It quickly approached us and began running circles around us. I held my arms out to try and see if I could feel anything, but I couldn't. The weirdest part of it all, though, 
was that I could feel the vibrations of the footsteps around us, but could not see or feel anything in the air. These footsteps circled us for what seemed like many minutes, but were probably no more than a minute or so at most. It suddenly stopped circling us, and we could hear the steps trail off the roof and disappear into thin air. We quickly ran inside and locked the windows and doors and huddled up inside freaked the hell out. This is just one of the many creepy stories I have had in this cabin. My Unparents From Trick 9 As a little kid, I lived in a 100-year-old house on the outskirts of a small town in the Midwest. I honestly loved living there. I made a lot of friends, too. When I was in the fifth grade, my parents decided to sell the place and move away. That's when it all started. At the time, there was a slight recession on real estate, and it took over a year to find a buyer. In that time, I was plagued with nightmares. Like any kid, I had nightmares before, but once I heard the news that we were moving, the nightmares became worse than ever before. They were always of this old man and an old woman. I remember the old woman vividly. She was tall, thin. She wore a wedding gown or some kind of white dress with a veil always covering her face. I'll never forget her face. She was wrinkled and had bushy gray eyebrows. Her eyes were piercing and her complexion gaunt. Her nose curved downward into a hook. The old man wasn't present in as many nightmares, but he usually wore overalls and was short and tubby. At first, their presence in my nightmares were ominous, I could have been dreaming about running through a field with my dog when there she would be, standing there. As time went by, the dreams got more aggressive and even repetitive. I remember vividly a dream where I was pushed out of the window of our third-story attic. Of all the dreams I had, this one occurred most frequently. To spare the details of them, Things happened to me in these dreams that any other ten-year-old boy couldn't imagine, even in his most sadistic nightmares. I complained about these dreams to my parents. They at first dismissed them, until I would wake up with bruises and cuts in awkward places around my body. Then I was taken to see a doctor. The doctor concluded that my wounds were self-inflicted, I had no memory and still have no memory of cutting myself or giving myself bruises. Eventually, these nightmares got so frequent, so terrifying, that I was afraid to sleep and would stay up days at a time. Eventually, the house was sold. I'll never forget the day we moved out. Everything was in boxes and was being carried out to our car. I was making one final sweep upstairs, while everyone scurried to get out the door. I went into the attic of our century-old house and scanned the room for anything left behind, until, out of the corner of my eye, 
camouflaged into the side of the wall, was an old-fashioned chest. I pulled it out from the rafters and onto the walkway in front of the window where I could see it. I opened it up and inside were various mementos, one of which was an old black and white photograph of an old couple. One short, pudgy man and one tall, gaunt woman with a hooked nose. And under the photograph was a worn old wedding dress. I stood up and a horrific feeling of deja vu overwhelmed me because now I was standing in the same spot where I'd been in my dreams before being thrown out the window. Behind me was the window. I stood up, a shiver going down my spine as if there was someone behind me. There was silence, and then I bolted down the stairs to rendezvous with my family, the photograph still in my hand. Eleven years later, I went back to my hometown for a visit. I'd thought about that couple for some time on and off. To the people I've told it to, this story was the best ghost story they'd heard. Obviously, some of them were exaggerating from time to time, but what happened to me was true, and now I was determined to know more. After eleven years, still having the photograph, I took it to the town library with the hopes of finding any records of previous owners of the house or who those people were. I was in luck. This old couple owned the house from the 1900s to the 1950s. Supposedly, from a death certificate, they had a son who died at six years old from a fall. From the third story of the house. From the window. They never had another child. From another death certificate, the old lady died of starvation in the attic, apparently. Perhaps she was wearing her old wedding gown when she died. Perhaps all the evil things that happened to me in my nightmares were simply them begging me not to leave. From the library, I went to visit that house. I knocked on the door and explained how I'd been feeling nostalgic and was just passing by. To my surprise, they invited me in briefly. Apparently, they had been renovating and wanted someone to see their progress, and I was happy to see the changes. As bizarre as it might seem, the house was built without a bathroom in it, and when we lived there, my dad renovated a bedroom to be a full bathroom. Coincidentally, the access to the attic is through the bathroom, so of course, when I asked to use the bathroom, I made one final trip to the attic alone. There were some new items being stored, but not much had changed. At first, I couldn't find the old chest, yet there it was. I pulled it out again and opened it. Everything was in its place. I took the old photo from my pocket, placing it back in the chest. Then I closed it, and left. A Sentimental Mistake From Here to Tell I live in the UK, in the West Midlands. I've never lived anywhere even close to rural woodlands, despite having a deep love for walking in nature. However, a few years ago, 
I dated a wonderful girl who lived in the countryside. In fact, when we were dating, she introduced me to this show. Never imagined I'd have my own story to tell, but here we are. Me and this girl, we'll call her Willow. We broke up a while back. Sadly, it was kind of messy, and now I really wish we could have stayed friends. I was a jerk and pretty insensitive at the time. If you're wondering why this matters, here's why. She lived very close to a somewhat famous woodland called Canic Chase. It's home to plenty of urban legends and tall tales. I never believed any of them, though. All my memories of the place were beautiful. When Willow and I would walk through it to get to a little pub near a road or walk her dog, this sweet-as-can-be greyhound, or just walk and talk for hours, these were some of my best memories with her, and that's how I ended up having my encounter. It was only about a week ago as of writing this. I'm still coming to grips with all of it. I had a day free, and thanks to the lockdown, I was really itching to get out, though not somewhere with many people. I'd been reminiscing about old times with my playlist, and decided going to Canic Chase and rewalking some of the old routes me and Willow took would be a good idea. I wanted some fresh air, and to bask in some of the best memories. So that's what I did, and for the best part of a day, it was wonderful. I could still remember the main trails like it was yesterday. I walked across this little stream where you have to hop on stepping stones to cross and followed the main route for hours. I saw a few people walking dogs or biking, but for the most part, it was quiet. Just me, my music, and the old conversations me and Willow had all flooding back in my mind. That's when I got to an old pond we once walked to. It was pretty deep in and covered in a lime green surface layer. The weird thing is, it was still bright, probably about 4pm at the time. I guess you get so used to scary stuff happening at night thanks to horror movies and stories that you never expected to happen in broad daylight. I was miles away, sitting on a rock, skimming stones and wondering if things could ever be different, if I could somehow show her that I've changed and that we could be friends again. Then, out of nowhere, it hit me. The worst smell I've ever caught whiff of. It was so strong I choked and had to cover my mouth with my sleeve. At first, I assumed it was just gas from the pond that I had disturbed by skimming rocks, but then I realized the scent was coming from the woods behind me, not the pond. I decided it was time to leave and I got up, following a steep path to get away from that area as quickly as I could. I don't know if it had been silent the whole time, or if it had suddenly dropped silent then, but I noticed that deep quiet right then and there. And the thing was, no matter how far I seemed to go, the smell stayed persistent. It was like a strong musk, kind of like dog urine, mixed with the classic rotting meat smell. The more I pushed up this steep path, the more out of breath I became, and the deeper I had to breathe in. God, I can still remember the taste it left in my mouth. I gagged a few times, and I was beginning to wonder if a nearby sewage pipe had burst or something. 
That's when the inevitable happened, and I threw up. At least I'd made it to the top of the hill. Now I could just follow the bike path and leave from the same entrance me and Willow used to use, through a car park and out onto a main road by a bridge. The trip out of the woods was uneventful, though the whole time it was uncomfortably quiet and I couldn't shake that uneasy, I'm being followed feeling. I must have looked back over my shoulder so many times, I'm amazed I didn't sprain my neck. As I made it to the main road and I crossed to the bridge, I felt safe again. I decided I'd go under the bridge and compose myself by the canal before going home. After all, I haven't long passed my driving test and tackling the motorway slightly shaken and nauseous wouldn't have been a smart move. So I went and sat under the bridge, listening to music, trying to get my head straight. I must have sat there for about an hour, working my way through an album I'd always listen to when taking Willow's Greyhound for a walk, letting my stomach settle. Then all at once, the scent came back. I thought I was going crazy at first. It was the exact same, though this time much, much stronger. The road nearby was quiet, as it was a Sunday afternoon, and so the only sounds were the gentle babbling of the canal and the horses in a nearby field who were, all of a sudden, going completely ballistic. As the smell grew stronger and stronger, the horses stopped making noise and instead all seemed to bolt to the farthest end of the field. Then, I heard a new sound. A heavy plop as something further down the canal hit the water. My head jolted in the direction, but it was too late. The fairly calm water was rippling like something huge had just dove in, but I didn't catch what. Ever the skeptic, my immediate thought was that one of the horses was freaked out by the smell and had jumped in. But the canal wasn't that deep that a whole horse could just vanish within it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't want to know. I headed for the steps back up the road, but as I turned away from where the splash had happened, I heard another, fainter one, less like something dropping into the water, and more like something popping up and then right back down. Naturally, I spun around to look, and to my horror, I saw that the water was disrupted from a spot considerably closer than where the first splash had happened. That feeling of being watched had returned tenfold, and I got the strong impression to not turn my back on the water again. Slowly and very carefully, I backed toward the steps. My eyes trained on where I thought something was. It was hard to make out, but there was definitely something in there, something large, wide, just a shade paler than the murky water. I couldn't make much out. I didn't want to, but with every few steps I took in retreat, it seemed to move against the current towards me. I swear, it was the most intense minute or so of my life. As I reached the steps, I knew I had to make my break for it. I turned slightly and ran up. As soon as I made my move, I heard the water erupt, and I heard a ghastly panting, like that of a wheezing man. <laughs> 
I even felt droplets of water flick against me as I hurtled up the steps into the bridge. Only when I made it to the top did I dare to glance back, only to see the water being distorted again and a long, slender limb slip back under. I didn't see enough to say much, but it looked like a really disproportionate human arm, almost gray in color with extremely long fingers. I booked it out of there to my car, making it home in record time. It still messes with me that whatever tried to grab me and drag me down into the canal had followed me from deep within the woods out into what I'd consider quite a pedestrian area in broad daylight. It was so unnatural, like nothing I've ever seen, and that gasping noise when it surfaced, I keep hearing it in my nightmares, like a mix between a drowning man and a low, snarling sound. Well, that's my story. It's left me shaken and extremely uncomfortable. I find myself questioning other tales now and wondering what else might be out there. To think I came so close to being a missing person case, it sends chills down my spine. Be careful around the woods and the canals. I don't know if that thing is still about or if it was just a passing encounter, but keep your eyes open. If you smell that scent, trust me, you'd know if you do. Get away, but don't go straight home. If it could follow me from the pond to the bridge, it could end up following you where you live. Stay safe, everyone. Be careful out there, and remember, just because it's not dark doesn't mean there are no monsters watching you. I learned the hard way. Warning, the following story contains disturbing depictions of animal violence. There's something in the woods in regional New South Wales from Hunter 89. Around 2012, my best friend and I were hiking through the woods of one of the local mountains late in the afternoon for some exercise and because we were bored as can be. Not much happened on the way up. A few kangaroos here and there, but not much else. Great view at the top. Good chill spot, too. So after the sun went down, we got the flashlights and headlamps out, carefully making our way down the mountain towards town. Again, not a lot happened along the way back, aside from some odd noises, some excitable ruse and other wildlife. About three-fourths of the way down, we stopped for a bit to rest, which in itself was odd, as we weren't all that tired out heading up the mountain, and we'd had plenty of rest at the summit. We both felt pretty drained, though, but since our backpacks were lighter after consuming some of the supplies, it seemed a bit out of the ordinary. Then we noticed it. A dead silence up there. No nightlife, no nothing. No crickets, and even the roos weren't crashing about the area like they had been. Absolutely nothing. So we were understandably a bit weirded out, and decided we should quietly pick up the pace. As we made it to the bottom, it was like the sound had been turned back on or something. 
so we continued on our way, feeling normal again, having a yak about random crap and moving aside for the rare car. About another kilometer or two later, we started hearing some weird stuff, and we'd noticed that all the other sounds had once again stopped. This time, when I started to feel tired, my adrenaline started pumping instead, because I remembered it had happened before. And then that sound happened again, some kind of rasping, throaty roar in the distance. It came from ahead and to the right of the road in the woods. Danged if I know what it was, but I do know that that sound isn't achievable by a human. As we got closer, we could hear a lot of crashing noises in the area we'd originally heard the sound from, followed by that horrible sound again, and the sound of an animal in agony being cut short. From when we first heard it, up until that point, we had turned off our lights and were practically creeping along the road. But now, curiosity unfortunately got the better of us. We shone our torches over in the area those messed up sounds had been coming from. What we saw next nearly made me wimp out to the max, and if my best friend hadn't been there, I would have bolted back to town. However, despite our attempts to show the whole macho as always vibe, all we could do was ready our knives and stare uncomprehendingly at this thing that was staring right the heck back at us. To make matters pants-wreckingly worse, this gosh-danged thing had a dead, almost full-grown kangaroo in its mouth, or what was left of the roo, anyway. Since it seems like it was gutted alive and was still kinda twitching, Every instinct told me to run like a bat out of hell back to town, but thankfully, reason trumped my instincts, and I chose not to make any sudden moves, especially since I somehow knew that we wouldn't make it very far if either of us ran. For what felt like ages, it seemed to be watching us, as though deciding whether to drop its fresh kill in exchange for us or not but then it sort of hunched up and made a slightly muffled form of that sound it seemed to make, backing up a little and jumping over five meters up the darned cliff face behind it. It then made the noise again before jumping and climbing further up the cliff and out of sight. It was big, with gray-white hair or fur, and it could stand on two legs when it needed to. It had freaky-shaped but clearly powerful jaws and claws like darned hands. But worst of all were its eyes. I swear, those eyes, they looked like they were full of nothing more than hunger and hatred. Needless to say, I don't like going hiking at night anymore. Something is walking down the sidewalk and looking out my window. From Listener My mother told this story to me not too long ago. She suspects that someone is stalking her. Or something else. To this day, she still doesn't know what to believe, and I don't know what to believe either. This is her first time telling me this story, and it has scarred her ever since. This story will be told from her perspective. 
A long time ago, when I was about 20 or 22 years old, I had a big house with even bigger windows. This was a new home because I had just moved away from my parents' house. The place didn't seem evil at first. I was that person who was easily drawn to the outside of an object rather than the inside. I called my three friends over, Sam, Sonny, and Ricky. We'd been friends ever since grade one. We were one troublesome gang of kids back then. Teachers would get fed up with us, and even in middle school, Rick was sent to an alternative school. Anyway, I called my friends over and they all came fairly quickly. I didn't make any plans, so we all decided we would just chill out and play some games and talk. We loved talking. We loved talking so much that we would even cut each other off because our minds just kept giving us new things to talk about and we couldn't help it. Sunny was sitting near a window watching cars speed by. Whenever she got tired of talking, she'd stare off into space. I was making my way upstairs. This house was two stories high and when you walk up the first flight of stairs, high up on the wall, there is one small window. When I finished walking up, the first room I walked into was unoccupied. I had already started putting junk in there and the pile was rising up by the day. I continued walking and I was now in the bedroom. And there I had one large bookshelf, two huge windows and a bathroom as well. This place is so huge, I thought. Suddenly, the door behind me hit the wall. I turned only to see Sam laughing her head off. Annoyed, I asked her why she was laughing. She tried to answer, but she had trouble trying to stifle her laughter between words. She was finally able to say, Ricky and I were just looking up some monsters caught on camera on YouTube. We saw this thumbnail of a tall black figure just standing on a sidewalk watching through the screen. Then Ricky said that it was probably his dead uncle looking for someone because he wasn't buried correctly. Yikes, I thought. I didn't think that was funny, but Sam thought it was. Instead of laughing, I just warned her that what Ricky said was no laughing matter. Sam's whole expression changed from smiling to complete guilt. Oh, sorry, she said. I'll tell him that later on. Soon after, it was nighttime. Sam and Ricky had fallen asleep. It was only me and Sonny. Sunny was on her phone and I was on my bed, lying on my back facing the ceiling. The light was off and now the room was the darkest of the dark. There was no moon, so the only light I could see was the light coming from Sunny's phone. The large window was covered in blinds. That even made the room ten times darker. Then Sunny asked me a question that made me sit up. I wonder if we're going to see him again, she said. She put her phone on a charger and turned in my direction. I couldn't see anything, and the only expression I guessed she was making was a blank one. Who's him? I asked. Sonny didn't talk for a moment. I thought she must have fallen asleep, but then she answered, Oh, he will come. He comes every night. There's no stopping him. He stops at every house, every apartment. He will visit us tonight, no matter what. Weird, I say in my mind. After that, Sonny no longer said anything. 
Later on, I wake up, so apparently I slept some. And for some reason, the large window behind me was making me want to stand up and walk towards it. Half of me was saying obey, and half of me was trying to stay in bed. But I didn't want to sleep. I wanted to see what was outside the window. I knew it was a bad idea, but for some reason I ignored that and stood up. I silently opened the blinds. There was nothing on the sidewalk, just darkness. All through the three minutes I stood there looking out, only one car passed by. I finally convinced myself that nothing bad was outside, so I turned away. I had only halfway turned around when something caught my eye. I turned back, and I saw something that scarred me forever. Right there was one tall black figure. It was the blackest thing, blacker than the shadows around it, tall and lanky. The arms almost touched the ground. It was hunched over, but what scared me the most were its giant white glowing eyes. They were the only things on it that weren't dark or black. It was looking at me, unblinking. Turn away, turn away, turn away, my mind begged. That's when the tall figure outside did the unpredictable. My jaw dropped when it started to wave at me. It waved. Why would a being so demonic in appearance wave at me like a friendly person? There was a sudden shuffling behind me. Sonny walked up beside me and said, Say hello to it. That sounded like an order. I did as she told me to do. Uh, hello, Sonny and I said in unison. The figure opened its mouth, filled with bright glowing white teeth, and I swear it spoke in a loud voice that seemed to echo off of everything. Hello, you two. Then it vanished, like it wasn't there at all. I couldn't believe it. Sonny had spoken to this thing. She looked at me and smiled, then went back to bed, and I was left there to question what I saw. As scary as it looked, maybe it wasn't evil. Maybe the figure just stopped by to say hello. Is there something else I don't know? Is it connected to Sunny somehow? The following story is a fictional story written by me. By the way, I'm still looking for some stories I can narrate for my next episodes. I'm on the lookout for some specific topics, like Alone at Night, Full Moon, Sightings of the Dogman, or Rest Stops. If you've got any experiences or stories matching those, send them over at darkstories.org. For now, be sure to hit that like button and comment below what you think of this story. Now... Let's begin. Someone in my family isn't human. 
by Darkness Prevails. Someone in my family is not human, and they haven't been since our trip to the family cabin. The four of us had always stayed at the cabin every year in the fall. We spent the initial cooling of autumn by the warmth of a cabin fire, as if to prepare ourselves for an even harsher winter. My father, mother, little brother Chris, and I enjoyed this tradition, and that moment every year when we would first see a leaf change color and fall to the ground, our excitement grew. Our yearly retreat meant sledding, snowball fights, hot chocolate, and that nostalgic scent of pine wood that made up the walls of the structure. We would spend a week there in those snowy mountains, close, bonding, happy. Dad would tell ghost stories and cliched urban legends every evening, and Mom would cook a feast of a country breakfast in the mornings. It was a pine-scented, bacon-flavored heaven. Until that particular nightfall fell, and a horrid noise erupted from the mountains around us. You could call it a howl, but it was unlike any howl I'd ever heard. Nature documentaries, horror films, real life. There was no equivalent to this sound. It seemed to reverberate forever off the slopes. It was loud enough to have our family in fear of an avalanche. But it wasn't a tempest sheet of ice and snow that shook us to our core. There was no avalanche. Rather, the sound of this howl seemed to affect my younger brother. After some time, I noticed he hadn't blinked for several minutes. His eyes watered, tears dripping down his cheeks, and yet he denied his body the satisfaction of blinking. I tried to get his attention, but the moment I spoke his name, he burst from his position on the rug, running out the door. My mother called after him. My father pursued, and in a panic, I found myself on my father's heels. Yet the old man was too fast for me. Moments after we entered the tree line running after my little brother, I'd lost sight of them both. The mess of footprints, animal prints, and various other disturbances in the snow left me with no idea where either of them had gone. My head shot back and forth in every direction, desperate for a clue. Knowing I couldn't just sit there, I ran forward, hoping that one of these sets of tracks would lead me to a familiar face. My cheeks and eyelids burned from the cold and wind that brushed past them. The snow came down harder, causing my teary-eyed vision to become even more dodgy. And then it happened. I hadn't expected to break through a tree line. I hadn't expected to fall down a sharp slope. After that, hitting my head upon a low-hanging branch and blacking out was no surprise at all. When I came to, it was still dark, 
Still night. I looked around and quickly spotted the tree I had assaulted with my head. But now it was a couple of dozen yards away. Looking around me, I found myself further up the slope than when I'd blacked out, with a trail leading from the tree to where I lay now. As if... as if I'd been dragged. Assuming it was my father who, for one odd reason or another, could not accomplish the task of carrying me back to the cabin, I called out his name. I didn't care for any avalanches. I belted my voice across those mountains and prayed my father would find me. There was a response, but it wasn't my father. There was a chilling scream coming from further up. It sounded like my mother. I picked myself up out of the much thicker snow. I lurched up the slope. I managed to find my way back, having memorized the direction of the scream. Sure enough, it had come from our cabin. Emerging from the tree line, I saw the cabin door wide open. It must have been that way for some time, as a thick layer of snow had found purchase on the hardwood floor inside. I took off in a haphazard sprint, meandering my way to the door through the snow. When I set foot on the wood surface, it felt as if I was on another planet. Stable footing was something I didn't know I could miss. Mom? I called out as I walked through the doorway. I pushed as much of the snow back outside as I could, and then I shut the door. I glanced around the room. The ember within the fireplace was dwindling, and my mother was nowhere to be seen. She had been sitting at the chair across the room from the fireplace, enjoying a toasty mug of dark roast coffee. With a sniff, I could very well still smell her distinct coffee, even in spite of my runny and stuffy nose. My boots slid, nearly causing me to fall, as I ran to the kitchen. Before I passed through the archway, a figure taller than myself emerged from around the corner. Mom? I whimpered. The fire crackled and thin, dancing strips of light bounced from the form's face. It looked like my mother, but she was frowning and seemed to be staring past me. Gloria, Chris is hurt. That voice was my father's. I turned on my heel to see him doggedly carrying my little brother in his arms. The small boy's face was tinged red and his breathing shallow. Struggling with what to say or do, I heard my mother finally speak. Everyone in the car, she demanded. I obeyed without question or hesitation. The four of us piled into that 1999 Range Rover and hauled tail to the nearest hospital or doctor, that could see us. To this day, Chris has a small scar on his cheek, where he'd gotten frostbite. He doesn't seem to remember a bit of that night, doesn't even recall the mint chocolate cocoa we'd shared by the fire before he sprinted off into that near blizzard. 
Dad said he'd searched for Chris for several hours. He'd found my brother under the snow, and what bothers me was the way Dad said it appeared Chris had been buried, not simply covered by falling snow. Even now, my dad is adamant that there were dozens of other prints around the mound in which Chris had been buried. As for me, when I woke up from blacking out after hitting that tree branch, I had apparently awakened near morning, though it was still quite dark out. The doctor said I was quite lucky that I didn't get frostbite too, though I did get a nasty concussion. But that didn't weigh on my mind. Instead, I couldn't keep myself from wondering what had dragged me up the slope, because Dad said he never saw me. He even apologized, saying that he didn't know I took off after him once Chris left the cabin. And regarding my mother, she always behaved strangely when talking about the event. She says when the three of us ran out of the cabin, she closed the door and had an emergency number dialed on her phone ready to call for help at a moment's notice as she watched out the window. But that just doesn't match up. And the way she looked at me when I came back to the cabin. Well, as the months went on after returning home, things slowly felt normal again. We all seemed to forget the panic of that night, realigning ourselves with our daily routines and habits. Before long, I stopped noticing Chris's scar. I stopped pestering my mother about her recollection of events. I stopped harassing my father about exactly what he saw out there. It's funny how going back to school, spending the night at friends' houses, and enjoying the newest video games can make it seem as if a traumatic event never happened. Or maybe I simply didn't want to think about it anymore. A few months after the cabin excursion, I awoke one night to my eyes watering and my nose wrinkled. There hung a sour smell in the air, working thoughts of spoiled milk or sun-worn cheese in my mind. It was the first time in my life a smell had been vile enough to stir me from slumber. I gagged when I tried to yawn. Throwing the sheets off of me, I groggily crept from my bed in search of the smell. One messy plop underfoot later, I realized the source of the smell lay right at the foot of my bed, right where I had just stepped. Lifting my foot and wincing at the wretched sensation of unknown sludge and mucus stuck to my heel, I stared down at the rug. A pile the color of pitch dark blue with tinges of peachy flesh tinted clots sat as a splatter on the floor. There was so much of it. Horrified, I screamed, awaking my brother who shared the room with me and causing my father to come running down the hallway. What's the matter? He asked hurriedly after throwing open the door. I, I don't know what this stuff is, and it's everywhere. I tried to maintain composure in my explanation. 
My dad approached where I was standing. He squinted his eyes and flinched when the smell really hit him. Ugh, what did you do? He demanded to know, still staring at the refuse while pinching his nose. I, I didn't do anything. How could I even make something... I pointed at the revolting mess. Like this. My father raised an eyebrow, looking to me then back at the sludge-like mass. He walked over and knelt down, examining the substance. I thought he was going to touch it for a second, but then I saw him grimace. A few extended moments later, he said, Just... Just clean it up, the both of you. I rolled my eyes, still ready to vomit or scream, depending on what the sludge decided to do if I touched it. Chris went straight for the bottle of Febreze we kept in the bathroom. A minute after Dad had left the room, he came back. Hey, did your mother pass by here? I shook my head. His brow furrowed. I listened to him walk down the hallway toward the living room, calling her name, but not getting a response. After cleaning up the mess, Chris and I helped look for her, but she was nowhere in or around the house. She wasn't answering her phone either. After hours of searching, we all slept in Dad's bed, hoping she would return soon. In the morning... I woke up next to Dad, who seemed to be unblinkingly staring at the opposite end of the bed. Slowly, I looked over past Chris's still-sleeping form, and there was my mother, smiling at us as if she had just awakened from a peaceful night's rest. Good morning, she bid us. My father woke Chris and forced the two of us out of their room. We then heard our parents arguing for the next ten minutes, after which my mother stormed out of their room and sat patiently at the kitchen table while her coffee brewed from our Keurig. The smell of dark roast coffee hung in the air. I cringed at it, reminded of the cabin. That was all it took before I looked at her like I looked at her then, with suspicion and fear. Once the sound of coffee spurting from the dispenser ceased, Mom walked over, then returned with her steaming beverage. She stared off into the distance, which wasn't more than a tall kitchen window with white blinds. That was the face of my mother, deeply concerned. It was then I happened to find focus on her fingernails. There was something there to see, and my eyes wouldn't pry away from them, even though I didn't understand why for a few seconds. Then, mouth agape, I knew. The same pitch-dark blue substance, it was stuck underneath each one of her fingernails. There were even traces of the flesh-colored clots. Feeling a need to ascertain what I'd noticed, I ran up to her and forced my arms around her. A hug that I wanted to recoil from but I was close enough then to smell her hand. Coffee grounds, earth, curdled milk and putrid cheese. Ah, oh, sweetie, mom and dad are gonna be okay. 
She rubbed my forearm, those dirty nails sliding across my skin. It's just, I'm going through a hard time right now, okay? I released my hold on her and stepped back. She was crying. Tears welled up in her eyes as she looked at me. No, through me, once again. I hated it. Something about the way she now looked at me I despised. It made me nauseous and angry all at once. My mother, ever since that night at the cabin, hadn't once looked at me normally. Hadn't once treated me as she had used to. That was the beginning of the changing of my mind. This person drinking my mother's coffee, wearing my mother's bathrobe, and sitting at my mother's chair, it wasn't my mother at all. From then on, I kept a safe distance from her, but I always made sure I was close enough to observe her. Sometimes I would watch her when she didn't know I was there, I was invigorated to rediscover her daily routine. Was it the same? If she looked at her own son so differently anymore, then surely the small, more mundane aspects of her life had changed in kind. I watched her do the laundry through cracked door. I stared at her when she left for her morning runs. I pretended not to notice when she came back, glancing a little bit more than she knew. Yet, it all seemed the same. Aside from the occasional discrepancies in her behavior, like the night with the mess in my room, my mother acted like she used to. Then, I decided to test her in a different way. When she'd leave on her own, I'd ask to go with her. When she'd go for runs, I'd ask to join her. When she was bored and looking at her phone, I requested that she play a board game with me. Any decent parent would see this as a child longing for more attention from their parent, but it soon became clear to me that my mother didn't see it this way. She seemed hesitant when I asked to tag along, and when she would eventually give in, mom would always have nothing to say or talk about. It was clear she didn't want me around her. This broke my heart even more. My mother and I had always been so close. She used to read the Boxcar Children book series to me in bed. She always made sure I got dibs on the mixing bowl when she was making brownies or cookies. And when my first girlfriend broke up with me, my mother held me and cried with me. That had been my mother. Whoever or whatever this person was, it was no longer her. One night, I awoke in a cold sweat. Something felt wrong. I felt hot and cold, achy yet numb, and I had a bad taste in my mouth. I sat up in my bed and wiped my tired eyes. When I opened them again, I nearly screamed. A tall, dark figure stood at the edge of my bed, Feminine, familiar, my mother. She was holding something in her right hand, but it was too dark for me to be sure of what it was. Mom? I called to her in an exhausted voice. She did not voice a reply, 
Instead, she shook her head. Seconds later, I could see a glimmer in her eyes. Tears? She stepped forward, beginning to approach my side of the bed, her right hand rising into the air with that unknown object grasped tightly. I tried to crawl away, but my back hit only wall. Then she began to swing. Instinctively, I closed my eyes and covered my face with my hands, palm out. In that moment, I can't be sure if I felt anything at all, but I do know my heart pounded with denial. Honey, what are you... My father entered the room and turned on the light. Revealed was my mother, standing over me, a knife in her hand. There was blood on my blankets, blood on my hands, and that repugnant odor had once again returned. I looked her right in the eyes. There seemed to be nothing human left in them. My father leapt and stole the knife from her grasp, shouting expletives. When the knife fell, hitting the hardwood floor with a metallic clang, she took off from my room. I heard her exit the house. My dad began to dial 911, but I grabbed him by the arm. Please don't. Not Mama. I pleaded. He looked at me. Then he turned toward my brother, who was cowering wide awake in the corner. My father, gritting his teeth, locked his phone. He took the two of us to his room and began to explain that our mother just wasn't well. She needed help, he said. But even he didn't seem to understand what was wrong with her or why. My heart ached. I was breathless the remainder of the night. How could she have done this? Even if my paranoid thoughts about her were now solidified, I still could not believe it. My own mother had tried to kill me. Dad called my grandma on mom's side, letting her know which direction she took off in and that it might be best to find her sooner rather than later. I didn't sleep that night opting to wander the halls, looking out the windows of our quiet home and afraid I'd see my own mother through them. I went to the front door, making sure it was locked. Then I checked the back. While the back door was closed, I noticed it was unlocked. As I reached for the bolt, I paused. There was a dark red stain on the floor leading underneath the door. Swallowing hard, I opened the back door, and I peered outside. Thankfully, my mother wasn't there. But something else was, something that smelled of rot and soil. Looking down, my eyes saw it lying on the mat, an amputated, dirt-covered human leg. I wanted to vomit. I cried into my hands that my father had quickly bandaged. Though I didn't know who my mother was anymore, I took the leg and I hid it in a hole in the backyard. I still loved my mother, and I didn't want to see her in trouble. I went back to bed, and I tried to forget the entire night. For weeks, we didn't hear from my mom. 
until dad finally got a call from grandma, stating that she was okay and being looked closely after at their place. My dad was quick to caution them, reminding them that having attacked her own son, there was no telling what she might do. Soon after, my mom began calling us herself. At first, dad wouldn't even pick up the phone, but missing her, it didn't take long for him to relent. She begged him to come over to her parents' house so they could talk this through. He refused a dozen times before finally agreeing to see her. I couldn't blame the man. He loved my mom and had always been crazy about her. When the day came that he would talk with her, he pulled me aside and asked me to watch Chris here at the house. I complied with a nod, but what he didn't know was that I'd already told Chris that I'd be going with him. When he wasn't looking, I hid myself in the back of the vehicle just as he was about to leave. Half an hour later, the incessant bumps in the road I felt told me we were pulling into a gravel driveway. We were at Grandma and Grandpa's house. Dad exited the car and closed the door. I heard him speaking with my grandparents outside before they let him in. When I was sure no one remained outside, I crept from the back of the vehicle and made my way to the side of the house. I'd spent the night here many times before. I knew they had only two bedrooms, one a master bedroom and the other a guest room. If my mother needed a place of privacy to talk with my dad, it would certainly be in the guest room she'd be staying in. Staying close to the wall, I rounded the house. I crouched below the guest bedroom window, and I placed my ear to the wall. The house was old. That was to my advantage. I could hear nearly perfectly through the wooden planks. I didn't attack our son. My mother sounded exasperated. I saw you in the kid's room holding a knife. My dad shouted back. Did you see him? My son, bloodied from his own mother trying to cut him up? Of course I did. Henry, I didn't touch him with that knife. That blood wasn't his. Did you not check him for cuts? Gloria, there was so much blood. I bandaged him up as quickly as I could and prayed he wouldn't need a doctor. A doctor would need answers, and the kids begged me not to call the authorities on you. I couldn't risk it. No, Henry, there were no cuts on him. Have you not seen how strangely he's been acting? What? Are you trying to blame him for this? He's always watching, always listening. He's been following me everywhere I go, and then I saw that leg at the back door and... Leg? What? That night, I found a severed human leg at the back door. Didn't you hear the news the next day about the missing kid in our neighborhood? No, I... Henry, our son did that. I listened unblinkingly, staring down at my bandaged hands. I began to unwrap them. Layer by layer, I could see my skin dried blood, no cuts, no bruises, no slices, nothing. The blood wasn't mine. 
My hands were perfectly clean, unscarred. My mother continued. Look, I don't want to say it outright. Not yet. So I'll just start where it began. You remember what happened at the cabin, don't you? The weird howl in the mountains, little Chris running out the door in the snow. Well, Ben chased after you. Ben kept asking my account of what happened that night, but I always told him a lie. I didn't want him to know what I knew. You see, I chased after Ben. I was afraid one of you would get lost out there, and I had to make sure you would all be okay. I followed Ben, but he managed to stumble down a slope. When I saw him hit that tree, I was horrified, and I started to rush towards him, but then I saw something. I don't know what it was, but it crawled through the snow on all fours, and its limbs were so thin. It couldn't have been human. It grabbed Ben while he was unconscious and began to drag him up the mountain. I shouted at the thing. I couldn't let it take my son. But it turned its eyes on me and began to bound through the snow towards me. I ran back to the cabin. I figured there'd be something there I could defend myself with. I ran to the kitchen and grabbed the biggest knife I could find and hid around the corner. The next thing I knew, the door slammed open. I didn't hear anything after that, save for another howl. Hours must have passed before I heard that door shut. I heard footsteps approaching the kitchen, and I, I rounded the corner. I saw Ben in front of me. I hid the knife behind me. I, I didn't want to scare him. I wanted to grab him and thank the heavens he was okay, but I stood there, frozen. Henry, Ben's eyes, they were solid black, and he was covered in this thick, dark substance. I couldn't bear to look right at him, but I looked long enough to see the black fade from his eyes and the substance absorb into his skin. Gloria, this is... this is too much for me. You're lying. What happened to you? Nothing, Henry, but something happened to Ben. I left him out there. I didn't go back for him. That thing... that thing got him. That boy we brought home... That boy isn't ours. Think about it, Henry. He didn't have any damage from the cold like Chris did. The doctor said he had a concussion, but there was no sign of one at home. And that night, when you three found that sludge in his room, I wasn't there that night because I'd been trying to dispose of the other half of it. What? Ben isn't human. That stuff... It comes from him. He changes. He follows a certain smell. I've seen the way he looks at us, the way he smells people and stares at them. When I watched him change again, I stayed up waiting for him to come home. Well, last time he came home with that human leg in his mouth. That's why I had a knife, Henry. Please, you have to believe me. I hadn't realized that I'd slumped over onto the ground. I was still staring at my hands. She had to be lying, right? I thought to myself. I I'm still me. I I'm the same me that I remember. 
I tried to reason with everything she had confessed, but everything was perfectly explained by what she said. The muck under her nails, the sludge at the foot of my bed, the way she suddenly started looking at me and treating me differently. And most of all, the blood on my hands that didn't come from me. My mother and father have since separated. My dad kept both of us, and my mother now lives with her parents. She calls almost every day, begging my dad to keep Chris safe from me. I can hear her over the phone with how loud she begs, but my father doesn't completely believe her. Or he does, and he's simply in denial. I've seen how he looks at me when he tells Chris and me goodnight. I've seen how he lingers at the door, staring right at me for a moment before leaving the door open and going to his own room down the hallway. I've seen how he cleans up my messes in the middle of the night by the bed, pretending it's normal, like it's the mess of some puppy that needs to be housebroken. And now every night, when I close my eyes to sleep, I look at my brother. He's still so young, young enough to sleep peacefully. At most, he's confused about everything that's happened, but he trusts us all as he always had. But I don't trust myself, because one day, I'm afraid that the other me I change into will see how easy of a meal Chris might be.